This is the Responsible Sports Podcast, presented by Liberty Mutual Insurance. In this episode, we welcome Nicole Millage. Responsible Sports is a program dedicated to supporting youth sport coaches and parents who help our children succeed both on and off the field. Each episode, our host Jim Thompson, CEO of Positive Coaching Alliance, will be joined by professional coaches, Olympians, world-class athletes, general managers, and leading youth sports experts who share their insights from their own sports careers. In this episode, Tina Sire, Chief Impact Officer of Positive Coaching Alliance, steps in for Jim and talks with U.S. Women's Seated Volleyball Paralympian and silver medalist, Nicole Millage. Nicole shares her youth sports experience and her path to joining the U.S. Women's Seated Volleyball Team. She discusses how she moves on from making mistakes and the importance of tank fillers. Sometimes it's a it's a game of who makes the least mistakes, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, your goal every time is, of course, not to make mistakes, but it's going to happen. It's inevitable. It's just the way that the sport is, and you have to keep moving forward, though. Leslie, she discusses how to honor the game and the role of parents. Nicole, I want to start off by introducing you to our responsible sports audience. Nicole Millage grew up in Champaign, Illinois, and played volleyball and softball at Centennial High School. When she was 21, she lost her left leg in a boating accident and then discovered sitting volleyball while working at a camp for disabled children. She graduated from the University of Central Oklahoma with a degree in business and human resources management and then got her MBA in 2012. In 2006, Nicole played in her first sitting volleyball international competition at the Volleyball World Championships in the Netherlands. Since then, she's been a stalwart member of the U.S. team, most recently starting all 17 sets of the London Paralympics, where the U.S. came away with a silver medal, matching the silver medal they won at the 2008 Paralympic Games in Beijing. Nicole currently lives in Champaign, Illinois. Nicole, thanks so much for joining the Responsible Sports audience and me today. Hi, Tina. Thanks so much for having me today. So I know um, growing up you played both volleyball and softball in high school, and I'm guessing you might have played other sports when you were a kid. And I'm curious, when you think back on that, uh, which of your coaches really stand out in your memory, and and what is it about them that makes them stand out? Um, One of the ones that stands out the most was uh, my high school softball coach. He was just he was just really into the sport. Like he loved softball. And so his love of the sport made you also love it just as much. So it made you want to work that much harder. It made you want to, you know, do your best to impress him that much more. And so that's just something that really stands out. What did he do that made his love of softball so evident? Well, he just knew the game so well, and he really committed a lot of his time, and then he took the time to really get to know his players and to also understand everybody as an individual and their strengths and their weaknesses and uh, just took the time to get to know you. So, so one thing inside of responsible sports is we often talk about um, the very best coaches realizing that their job is a lot bigger than just teaching the sport. So like the X's and the O's or the strategy, you know, how to lay the ball down on a bunt or how to execute a double play. Um, But they're really about teaching bigger life lessons and things that will stay with you long after you finish playing the sport. And I'm curious if there are certain life lessons you feel like you took away from that high school softball experience and that coach that actually transcend softball. 
Well, at the time, I wish I would have known that saw, that high school didn't last forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, you know, I I would have tried to make a little bit more of the opportunity, or just realize that it it was just kind of a smaller part of my life and like the grander scheme of things. And so, you know, I feel like I had a good time, but I also was very hard on myself. Mm. So. You know, I just wish I would have maybe enjoyed it a little bit more, been a little more relaxed. And, you know, I don't know if some of that also came off the um, pressures that I felt from my coach or my team or my family. Yeah. But I think that's pretty typical for high school students that are really competitive and really into what they're doing. I do, too. Sort of hard to sort of get a a look at the bigger picture and, and everything else you're getting out of it and enjoying it rather than just stressing out. I hear you. I hear you. Um, could you tell our um, our audience a little bit about your boating accident and and then the road back to playing sports? And, you know, I'm curious if there was ever a time where you thought maybe your sports career was actually over and, um, and how that all changed. Sure, yeah. Um, when I was 21, I was – the boat that I was on, I was thrown off of it, and I was run over by the propeller. Oof. And so – um, as a result, my leg um, was pretty badly damaged and also my left hand. Hmm. So um, they at first thought they could maybe save my leg, but then they decided that it was just going to be <laughs> not worth it in the end, that I was mm-hmm. going to have more problems with it, and that I'd be able to um, recover more quickly if I had it amputated. Mm-hmm. So the injuries to my left hand actually were what took a lot longer to heal than my leg. Um, mm. I had to have like seven surgeries afterwards to try to fix my middle finger, which had practically been severed. So my hand was actually a little bit bigger problem. But during this time, it was like a year or two span, I couldn't play any sports. And so I had to watch everybody else play. And I remember like it just kind of hurt my heart because I'm a competitive athlete and I wanted to be out there playing. So my goal during that that year and a half was to do everything I could to rehab as quickly as possible so that I could get back out there and show everybody that I could still do everything that I did before, but now with a prosthetic leg and, Mm -hmm. you know, with a fused finger and that it wasn't going to slow me down. Yep. Wow. Um, what it's, it's an inspirational story. So how did you discover volleyball, sitting volleyball? Um, in, I think it was 2003, I went to a, um, it was called ACA, um, wait, was it ACA? Amputee Coalition of America. Uh-huh. Um, they have uh, annual camps for children with disabilities, uh, mostly amputees, and they introduce the kids to the different sports. And by chance and by destiny and fate and everything I met a girl who was involved in it and she got me involved and I went to the camp and they introduced all the different sports um, a lot of the different Paralympic sports to the kids to see like you know what they like what they can still be involved in to keep them active and so it kind of played the same role for me as well (laughs) so I might have been a counselor but um I also was introduced to sitting volleyball, and I was asked if I um, wanted to come try out and see what it was all about. And it took the coach a little while to convince me to come out because I really wasn't sure what sitting volleyball was or, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I just didn't quite get it at the time. And I also didn't see myself 
as a disabled person. So mm. to be involved in a disabled sport was still something that was kind of foreign to me or like didn't quite make sense to me at the time. Yep. So uh, eventually, though, I did go try out and I was super, super sore. <laughs> and, <laughs> I, and it was the most challenging thing that I'd, I'd ever tried. And um, I have to admit the first year... I had to be talked into coming back quite a bit. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Which, um, you know, it was just because I wasn't good at it right away, and I wasn't used to being, you know, not good at something right away. And yeah, yeah. So, um, but I'm glad that I stuck with it. So I stuck with it, and I kept practicing, and then I just wanted to keep getting better, and that's why I moved to Edmond, Oklahoma, in 2007, so I could train full time. Wow. Um, so, so many things there I want to follow up on. Um, one, one thing you said is you didn't view yourself as disabled. Um, e- explain that to, to our, our listeners. I think I understand, but, you know, sort of talk us through that a little bit. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons I say that is because after my accident, um, growing up in Champaign, Illinois, where the University of Illinois is at, they have a lot of uh, wheelchair basketball here. Mm-hmm. It's a very big sport for the U of I. And so my aunt and a couple other friends tried to introduce me to wheelchair basketball. And I was still in a wheelchair at the time. I didn't have my prosthetic leg yet. And I was watching them practice, and I didn't really have anyone explaining anything to me. I was just yeah. there simply watching. Yeah. And I I was so confused. I was like, but I'm not going to be in a wheelchair. I'm not disabled. Right. You know, like I, right. I I'm I'm not wheelchair bound. Like it just all of it wasn't making sense in my head to me. So, yeah. yep. um, and that was my first introduction to a Paralympic sport, unfortunately. And I think that things have progressed and changed a lot over the years till now, where kids are introduced in, you know, a different fashion, or it's just there's a lot more known about Paralympic sports. So, yeah, I'm really, I'm glad you're, you're saying that. Cause one of the things I wanted to ask you is I really feel like the profile of the Paralympics is growing worldwide. And I was hoping you could tell our listeners a little bit about your experience partic- participating both in Beijing and then in London. Yeah, sure. Um, well, let's see, I joined the team in 2005. So I had a good three years to train before I went to Beijing and I heard all the stories from the other girls that went to Athens about, you know, how great it was and a life, you know, once in a lifetime experience. And um, but nothing prepared me for Beijing because they did everything like above and beyond. Like everything was just awesome. Um, everything from the opening ceremonies, like walking into the um, bird's nest. Mm-hmm. It was just, it was so big that you couldn't even wrap your head around it. And there were so many people. And this is when it hit me that this was a lot bigger than me. This was a lot bigger than my team. Yeah. Like, this was something really, really special to be a part of. So, you know, to get to do that, you know, once and then get to do it twice, you know, I felt extremely lucky. lucky. I don't know if I'll I'll do it a third time, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) we'll see. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, just to be involved in something like that. And I learned so much about different disabilities that are out there and mm-hmm. stuff that I didn't even honestly think about. And I was just exposed to so much myself, even though I was, you know, going in it as a disabled athlete, it taught me so much. And I think that 
you know, the Paralympic movement is something that's spreading more and more as years go by. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, it's not um, as well known or recognized here in the U.S. as mm-hmm. it is in other countries. Yep. But we're hoping to change that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So on that note, um, for our listeners, if they want to get involved with Paralympic sports, either as a coach or, you know, as an athlete, where can they find information and where can they sort of become part of the movement? Well, of course, there's a website dedicated just to U.S. Paralympics. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure that there's all kinds of information on there. You can contact any athlete to find out any information. Just make Google your best friend. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. Um, and are there opportunities if people want to coach? Oh, I certainly believe so. I know that um, our coach has been looking for more assistant coaches, and um, it's a little hard with sports like sitting volleyball because nobody has experience with it. You know, it's something that you come in and learn fresh, and so I know that's been a bit of a challenge for our coach and for just sitting volleyball in general. Educate us for a second. What are the sort of the main um, things that are different or the same with sitting volleyball? Well, with sitting volleyball, the court is smaller, the net is lower, and so everything that's happening is just happening a lot faster. It's a very Mm -hmm. fast-paced game. And so while it's very similar to standing, there's a lot of differences. Um, You know, of course, you're, you're sitting down and you're using what limbs that you do have to help you move around and anytime that you make contact with the ball your um, bottom has to be on the ground okay so if your bottom comes off the ground it's called a butt lift (laughs) and (laughs) there's like a gator sign that the officials make if you come off so um you know it's just one of the other major differences is you can block serves okay so um, for the most part, though, your systems and everything are kind of the same. It's just, like I said, more fast-paced. Yep, yep, excellent. The ball comes at your face a lot faster. Right, right, a smaller court. So so when you guys are competing and, um, and you make a mistake, um, which I'm sure in your case is very rare, um, what, what tools do you use um, or, or do your teammates use and that your coaches have you use to help you bounce back and focus forward you know, we know from sports psych that the ability to have like a short memory and focus forward is so important for athletes. And are there certain tools you guys use to help you process mistakes? Oh, gosh. Um, it's like any other sport. It's it's frustrating. You have to figure out how to kind of uh, look within and kind of get that from yourself. Yeah. And, you know, our coach is constantly talking about, you know, it's it's the next play that's the only one that matters next you know play. leave the yeah. past in the past and you have to move on and so yeah. it's easier said than done of course and um especially like i said with a fast paced game like sitting volleyball you have to really just kind of move on because sometimes it's a it's a game of who makes the least mistakes you mm-hmm. know so you know, your goal every time is, of course, not to make mistakes, but it's going to happen. It's inevitable. It's just the way that the sport is, and you have to keep moving forward, though. And, you know, there's definitely some times when people struggle. I know that I do for sure, <laughs> but you just have to do everything you can to not get frustrated. Yep, yep. So um, another big part of responsible sports that we talk about is being an emotional tank filler 
um, so that, that, you know, the things you're saying to your teammates or the things that you as a coach or a parent are saying to athletes are specific and truthful things that they're doing well. Um, and it's, I think it's tempting as like a new coach to point out everything that needs to be done differently and to correct a lot. Um, but we know athletes perform their best when they actually get like five pieces that are specific tank fillers for every time they're corrected or drained. And I'm curious if this is something that you think about, like in your own interactions with your teammates, um, you know, and, and how, if you have any teammates um, that you think are particularly good at being emotional tank fillers. Um, yeah, I definitely think that we have, um, or I definitely think that everybody on the team plays a different role. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm definitely myself more aggressive and talkative and, <laughs> you know, I, um, it's just I'm kind of always seeing a few steps ahead and I'm kind of a commentator out there. And then there's mm-hmm. other people that are quiet and I don't understand those people, but mm-hmm. <laughs> no, um, I just joke, but there's, it's realizing also that not everybody has the same personality as yeah. you or not everybody thinks the same way as you or acts the same way as you. And that's one of the major lessons for sure that I've learned over the last few years mm is that, you know, just because somebody doesn't react the way that I do or say the things that I do doesn't mean that they don't, they're not just as involved or that they don't care just as much. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the things that my coach has really taught me um, over the past past few years and training all the time, being around the same people all the time and when you get frustrated. And so it's something that I always try to keep in the back of my mind to remember when I'm playing. Yeah, that seems like a huge life lesson that would transcend volleyball. You know, so I think the exact same thing happens in the workplace or even in families, you know, where you sort of feel like, why aren't they reacting the way I am? Exactly. Um, and that's, that's what I'm, you know, working now um, full time. Yep. And I'm back in the real world and I'm, you know, using all the tools and everything that I've learned over the past few years and I'm applying it at work too. And yeah it really has helped me, I feel like, as a person and as an employee, and uh, it's really um, benefited me. That's great. That's great. So on the topic um, of frustration, um, you know, I'm curious if you can tell, let's let's think specifically about our sort of youth athletes that are listening, um, when they feel themselves getting frustrated with officials' calls and just feeling like, wow, this official is not calling a good game and they're getting more and more frustrated what tips can you give them for what you do um, when you're in that sort of situation? Um, you know, I just try to take a deep breath. Uh-huh. I, try, I try to keep a level head. I'm not going to lie. It's very hard for me when we're in a competitive situation or a high-stakes game yeah. um, to kind of, you know, to kind of keep my mouth shut, it's kind of hard for me sometimes. Yeah. Yep. So one of my goals is that I just try to keep my mouth shut. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah. It might be written all over my face, but at least it's not coming out of my mouth. <laughs> yep. Yep. That seems very practical. And there are many coaches and parents who could benefit from that as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, not, I mean, you can have so many opinions and not every opinion or everything that you're thinking needs to come out of your mouth. <laughs> that's right. That's that's good. Um, so what advice would you give to parents who might feel like their kids um, are either not getting enough playing time or they're not getting to play the position that they want to play and um, they're having lots of feelings about like playing time and position? What kind of advice would you give to those parents about what they should do or can do? Um, oh, that's a little tough because 
I don't have kids. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I just, I never really been in that situation. But I, I just think offhand that, you know, that you have to trust what the coach is doing. That yeah. You have to trust that what the coach is doing is for the greater good of the team. And it's, it's not always about your kid or about any individual out there. It's yeah. about doing what's best for the team as a whole. Mm-hmm. So as hard as that truth might be, or, you know, if you not, might not like what that really means, you know, maybe try to really take a step back and think about it. Yeah. Yep. I think that's great. Even just the, the little bit about just trusting the coach is trying to do what's in the best interest for the whole team. Yes. I have to tell myself that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so if, um, if there were, you know, a young a young person who was recently disabled and sort of felt like their sporting career might be over, um, but then he or she had the chance to watch you play, um, what would you hope that he or she would take away from watching you play? Well, I mean, of course, I just hope that they see that it's still possible to play the sports that you love, even if they're a little modified or, yeah. you know, yeah. even if they're a little changed, it can still be a new challenge and something that, um, you know, just challenges you in a different way that you didn't even know was possible. Yeah. And so we, we have recently had new girls um, try out for the team, come and practice, and I don't know, I try to encourage them to stick with it because of all the amazing opportunities that come from it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's so many different facets of that, you know, just meeting new people, learning stuff about yourself, traveling the world. I mean, just it goes on and on. So, you know, at first I'm like, hey, I know this might seem a little difficult, but, you know, trust me, it's so going to be worth it in the end. Yeah. Yep. Well, Nicole, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. And I know all the responsible sports listeners are going to learn a lot and really appreciate your stories and your thoughts. And um, I think all those parents, coaches, and student athletes will be really thankful. So thanks again for doing this. Well, great. Thanks for asking me. And it was a lot of fun. To learn more about responsible sports, visit responsiblesports.com. You'll find valuable responsible sport parenting and responsible coaching guides, downloadable tools and worksheets, and helpful advice from leading youth sports experts. Music for this podcast has been generously provided by APM Music.